Hi, friends. I'm Renee. I'm Diana. And I'm KJ. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Welcome back to round two of our Toby Day Trio. That's what I'm calling us. Today, we are going to talk about our good things. We're going to talk about some of the media we've been consuming. And we're going to get into the second book in the October Day series by Shanann McGuire. I'm assuming some of us are going to have opinions. Us have opinions? Never. The Toby Day segments are going to have spoilers for all the books, not just the book that we're discussing, because we're discussing the whole series. If you haven't read the series, you might want to skip that segment uh, and go read the series. Obviously, that's the answer. It's really good. But first up, we're going to talk about our good things. Diana, will you launch us off? Sure. So as we're recording this, a little more than a week ago, I got my first COVID shot. So I was initially supposed to get it yesterday, but the county next door to us was having a COVID vaccine fair. And so I was able to get an appointment there and also able to bully two of my friends who hadn't gotten their shots yet into also going because they were like, oh, no, we'll look into it. We'll look into making an appointment. And so finally, I was like, look, here's the link. This is the time we're all going to go together. We're all going to drive together. We're all going to get our first shots because I really want to have board game nights again. So I got my first shot. I'm very excited. I fortunately did not have that bad of a reaction. I just had a sore arm for about 36 hours. And I have my next shot scheduled. I am really looking forward to the fact that by early June, I will be fully vaccinated. And I can hang out with my friends who are also vaccinated without masks. I love a good vaccine story. KJ, what about you? What's your one good thing? My one good thing is also similarly vaccine connected. I am coming to you from the land of the fully vaccinated. I got my second vaccine on April 7th, which means that I am well past the two week deadline and I have been fully vaccinated for a week and a half. Although not too much about my life has changed yet because the people I've been hanging out with mostly will not be fully vaccinated at all until next weekend. I got a haircut and it was very exciting. Many of us have been uh, rocking the COVID hair for a while now. The fact that it was long didn't bother me too much, but the fact that the color was all faded out and the fact that my ends were a mess was really starting to wear down on me. So um, it's very nice to have it all cleaned up and I look more like myself and it's very exciting. So I'm here to tell you that uh, even though life is not back 100% to normal, being fully vaccinated is a huge relief. And I feel like I can, you know, not live my life 100%, but that's okay. It's definitely a better place to be. Get vaccinated if you haven't. Highly recommended. I am also fully vaccinated. I was fully vaccinated as of April 22nd. Since that vaccination, things haven't like gone back to normal, but uh, I did go to a county party meeting. And we all had masks and there were two points of ventilation. I am constantly like harping on people who in my offline life who are like, I'm going to hang out here. I'm like, does it have two points of ventilation? They're like, what are you talking about? We're going to be six feet apart. I'm like, that doesn't matter. It's an aerosol. It's in the air. I'm very happy that you are vaccinated. I'm very happy that Diana is on her way to being vaccinated. And maybe this means one day we'll all be able to see each other again at a convention. I miss my pals. 
Well, my good thing is after seven or eight years, I have revived my personal website. My personal website is ekthroy.org. Most people are going to be like, how the hell do you spell that? Understandable. E-C-H-T-H-R-O-I.org. Ekthroy.org. It's a Greek word. I first encountered it in Madeleine Ingalls' A Wind in the Door, my favorite book by her. So I've just been sitting on it. It's just been a placeholder for a long time, but I finally revived it and installed WordPress and I've been moving my like political posts. So my letters to the editor that I write, my city council agenda recaps. I'm hoping that it will become like a, a nice place to just collect all my stuff that's not on a third party service because I'm a little hesitant about third party services now because of what happened uh, with Substack. Just like, mm, maybe I should own the servers. <laughs> Well, in this case, rent the service from my company with money. Now all my writing will be contained uh, on my website. It's nice to have the option there. And it makes me very happy to have the space back and looking nice. I have a lot of fond memories of all the web design I used to do. I'm way out of practice now, though. So uh, I did not design my website. I'm using a theme. So if you happen to stop by, you're like, wow, this looks nice. That's not me. I'm just borrowing it. The writing is me. I signed up for Substack because I was thinking of it as a possible home for a, a project. I obviously am not doing that project on Substack anymore. I'm still considering uh, the best options for it, but I'm on their mailing list. I need to just shut down that account so that I stop getting their mailing list stuff. But some of the some of the targeted communications about what's going on over there have been sort of interesting to spy on. That's the only reason I haven't deleted it, honestly. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it for that purpose because you know most of the stuff I get is really chirpy marketing. Look at all the great writers on my on our on our service. None of the controversial ones, by the way. They never highlight those. It's very interesting. Wow, KJ right now is like the physical embodiment of that Marie Kondo gif where she's like, "I love mess." <laughs> <laughs> okay, Space Bees, we would like to hear what good things that you have been up to or have been experiencing. Uh, if you have vaccine stories, obviously I want to hear them. Thank you. I love a good vaccine story. I'm ready to hear all about your vaccine experience. Next up, we're going to talk about the media we have been consuming recently. KJ, what are your items? One thing that I've done recently is I uh, finally got around to watching the Pixar movie Soul. For some reason, my spouse had just now heard about it, and he saw that it was well-rated and, and that it had won a bunch of Academy Awards, and he likes Pixar movies, and we have Disney Plus now. So he's like, hey, let's watch it, and we did. It is very cute. The music is great. If anyone is by some amazing thing, like my husband living under a rock and hasn't heard of it, it's the story of a jazz musician played by Jamie Foxx, who, um, on the verge of getting his big break, has an accident and is on um, the verge of death um, and his soul goes to the afterlife and then ends up in sort of a, a different sort of space of vision, sort of a pre-life where souls are preparing to come down um, and uh, come down into human bodies and have lives. And he meets a reluctant soul played by Tina Fey and they have adventures. I don't want to go too much into it, actually, because I didn't know a lot more than that. And there were some delightful surprises that I enjoyed. There were some times where I really didn't see where it was going. It's sort of a buddy comedy between uh, Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, and it's a lot of fun. And it's very sweet. 
And um, I'm not usually a jazz person, but the jazz music is by uh, John Baptiste of the Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Jamie Foxx's character is a piano player, and John Baptiste plays the piano uh, when he's playing the piano, and it's really amazing. And there's also some nice stuff about artist and inspiration and the meaning of music to people who love it. It was just really a heartwarming and sweet way of spending a few hours. And the animation, of course, is Pixar. It's beautiful. A little bit reminiscent of Inside Out. Um, and Inside Out is my very favorite Pixar movie, so that's pretty high praise. The other one that I want to mention is the book I finished most recently. It's A Desolation Called Peace by Arcady Martine. A Memory Called Empire was my favorite book of 2019, and I was very happy when it won the Hugo for Best Novel. And so I was, of course, quite eager to read the sequel that continues the adventures of uh, Merit and Reese Grass. It's amazing. It's just as good as the first one. It goes bigger. We're not just in um, Merit's head. We get to see the perspectives of three seagrass, of the Imperial Air Six Antidote, and then also of a fleet captain named Nine Hibiscus. Um, so you get to see a number of perspectives as a war with uh, some aliens is encroaching. Um, and um, there's a lot of twisty politics. There's a lot of complicated relationship dynamics. It does get away from the city a little bit, which was um, one of the things I loved about A Memory Called Empire was that it was so set in a city and entrenched in the city as a setting and the city was a character in the story. That's a lot less true, this book, because only Six Antidote is really in the city. Um, everybody else is off having other adventures. It's very good. I love the conclusion. I was not expecting where it was going to go there. Uh, my understanding is this is a duology, which means the story is over and that makes me a little sad, but I also really enjoyed where it wrapped up. So if you liked the first book, I definitely recommend this one. If you haven't read either book, I would definitely recommend you check them out. Dana, what about you? What have you been into? Media stuff that I have been enjoying. So last week I was building bookshelves and I wanted to listen to something that I hadn't heard before, but I didn't think would require too much brain power. So I didn't want to do an audiobook. So I finally started listening to the Slow Burn podcast from Slate and I ended up binging it. I went through the first two seasons, so the seasons about the Richard Nixon impeachment and then the Clinton impeachment, and now I'm in season three, which is about the Biggie Smalls, Tupac Shakur feud, and it is really interesting. I really enjoy the fact that they take a really wide lens approach to talking about these things, so... For example, with the Nixon impeachment one, they start off talking about this woman, Martha Mitchell, who was the wife of then Attorney General John Mitchell, and talking about the role that she played in the Water Watergate story and how she was essentially kidnapped and forcibly drugged to try and keep her from talking about the connections between one of the Watergate burglars and her husband. And it was just really, really interesting. And I really enjoyed it and then I also ended up watching the Epics docuseries that was inspired by the first season of Slow Burn. It was very similar to the podcast but they did have some new components to it so for example one of the things that they do in the tv series that they don't do in the podcast is talk to one of the cuban exiles who was involved in the burglary anyway it was very very interesting if you like history if you want kind of a wide lens look at something so for me like i kind of remember the clinton impeachment but i was still fairly young when it happened so i don't really have much memory of it so again i highly recommend it very very good 
And then the other thing, I finished the new Murderbot novella, Fugitive Telemetry. It was very good. So I still haven't read Network Effect, but this book takes place between Exit Strategy and Network Effect, so I wasn't worried about being spoiled. It combined two of my loves, Murderbot and Murder Mysteries. It's dealing with Murderbot having to adjust to being on Preservation Station and trying to find its place there. And it's very good. I loved it a lot. Murderbot is one of my favorite fictional characters because it's very relatable. If you like Murderbot, I highly recommend picking up Fugitive Telemetry. It is very, very good. Your turn, Renee. Well, we are officially in BTS comeback season. They have a new single coming out in May called Butter. If you follow me on Twitter, uh, you're welcome for all the Butter fan art that you will get and the Butter puns you will receive. Part of this comeback is us getting extremely excited because Namjoon, who is the leader of BTS, did a collaboration with Eon, which is one of his favorite artists. Eon and Namjoon also collaborated on a song on, on Namjoon's mixtape, which is called Mono. And this song that Eon released is called Don't. The music video for the song, and I would argue kind of the song itself once you read the lyrics, has a very eternal sunshine of the spotless mind vibe to it. As per usual, Namjoon's verse is amazing. The album itself that the song is on is called Fragile. And I hadn't actually listened to this art as much. But after listening to the song with Namjoon, I went and listened to his whole album on Spotify. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to buy it. And I bought his album. If you're into like music, but you don't care if you understand the lyrics, then you might want to check this out. It's very like atmospheric and bittersweet. It's very, very good. The second thing I've been super into, so much so that I have incepted my partner into downloading it as well, is a game called Rush Royale. It is a tower defense game. I just really, really love a good tower defense game. They're my favorite. I have played all the Kingdom Rush games multiple times. And so this one is a little different. Rush Royale is a tower defense game that is also a card game. You have like a deck of cards with different characters and you can level up the cards. But when you play, you basically deal yourself cards with points that you get for destroying enemies. You can upgrade your cards. But the thing about it is it's all randomized. So when you're dropping cards from your deck, you don't know what card you're going to get. And then when you're merging cards, you don't know what card it's going to merge into. It's just very fun. I love it so much. When Zach downloaded it, I have learned that when your friends are online, you can play against them. You can either play like like in a competitive mode or you can play in the co-op mode where you help each other. I will sit around and listen to audiobooks and play this game on silent. It is the greatest, most relaxing thing ever. You can't really interact with the other players that you're playing with in ways that are abusive. Like you have pre-selected interactions. You can say like, good luck or good game or thanks or oops and you have like little emoticons you can use so there's not like a big risk of harassment which is good when we consider the gaming community itself highly recommend this game if you decide to play please let me know your username so we can be friends space bees although i ask you all the time to tell me what you're into and you all Sometimes do, but most of the time you don't. Then why don't you love me? This is a guilt trip. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a guilt trip. I still want to know what you're into. 
A Local Habitation is book two in the October Day series by Shanann McGuire. In A Local Habitation, Toby, along with a brand new sidekick, goes on a field trip to the county of Tamed Lightning and discovers shenanigans. When I first read the series, I actually liked this book a whole lot. But like coming back to it later, I'm like, oh, I can see why some people might be like, eh, about this book and its plot. The reason why I'm so surprised now that I liked it back then, it's basically a locker room mystery and I don't really like locker room mysteries in general. <laughs> Although apparently that might be changing. Maybe I'm developing a love of locker room mysteries. You know, when we talked about this, we sort of alluded to this last time and I mentioned this was my least favorite book of the series, but I liked it better than I remembered liking it. So that's interesting contrast that you like it less and I like it more. So maybe we've converged. I don't know. Yeah, and I'm still about the same where it's just fine. But a part of the reason I don't like it is when I first read it, I was also reading a lot of cozy mysteries and like a lot of mystery series in general. And I think as a mystery series, it doesn't really like as a mystery, it doesn't necessarily work for me in a way like that's difficult for me to describe. But I think it's mostly there's a lot of people kind of holding the idiot ball in a way where it doesn't happen in later books in the series which is frustrating for me because that is one of my least favorite tropes of all time with a good mystery there's always going to be there should be clues that point you to it and rereading this book I didn't always see I didn't really see the clues that were pointing towards the final culprit in a way that I like my mystery books to do so I totally agree with all that I was, I was also, you know, looking for clues. Okay, can we see who did it? Do we see who the final mystery is? And I found myself doubting my memory of who the culprit was because it's not set up. You don't see the clues leading toward it. The thing that I remembered not liking about this book is I had this memory that Toby should have figured out what was going on long before she actually did. But on reflection, the only reason I feel that way, with one exception, the only reason I feel that way is because everybody was holding back so much information from her that of course she didn't know what was going on. There's no way she could have figured it out because everyone was lying to her and hiding so much from her. And because it's a first person story, we only know what Toby knows. So of course we don't know what's going on either. And we're getting conflicting information. That's why it feels like it comes out of nowhere. The resolution comes out of nowhere for us because it comes out of nowhere for Toby. I mean, it's possible to hide clues and let the reader be a step ahead of the protagonist in first person, in, even in really close first per, or in close third person. But it's, again, this is only her second, it's one of her very first novels. It's, you know, it doesn't, wasn't quite there yet. The one thing I will say that still doesn't hold up for me in terms of Toby should have figured this out earlier was with what was going on with Alex and Terry. I realized what was happening with that practically the second Terry was introduced. You know, if Toby is a private detective who is used to looking for patterns and seeing things, it is completely unbelievable to me that she wouldn't have at least guessed that Alex and Terry were the same person. That was really frustrating. And that's kind of what I meant by characters holding the idi idiot ball. I think it was also really frustrating to me that whenever Toby voiced suspicions about Alex or Terry, no one told her what was going on and like I get it that they're paranoid and that they're worried about spies but it felt like the characters were being super secretive for no good reason especially once more people started dying 
in a lot of ways, this is set up as a mystery. But I wonder about the intention of it being a mystery. Because the point about Toby not knowing things and characters not being honest with her so she can't figure things out really makes me go, huh, so maybe this is not meant to be like a mystery. Maybe it's supposed to be something else, even though it has like the structure of a mystery. Mysteries have a very specific way that they're outlined and how they work. This book was missing a lot of those touchstones, like the clues thing. Even as a new author, it doesn't feel like that's the kind of oversight you make when you're writing a mystery, especially if you are extremely well read and have been reading books a long time. After I finish this, I'm like, well, I've been judging it like as a mystery this whole time, but like, what if it's not a mystery? What if it's just a thriller and about how people are liars and you can't trust anybody? Well, and I don't even know if it would work for me as a thriller because I don't tend to read a lot of thrillers. I tend to be more of a mystery person. But for me, there didn't seem to be that kind of tension that I normally associate with thrillers. And it's a little hard to describe, but I always feel that with thrillers, there's uh, the tension between what's happening and what the character doesn't know. And in this case, it felt like the author, Sean McGuire, in this case, was really enforcing what the character didn't know in a way that didn't feel, I don't know, didn't feel organic. It felt like it was forced on to the narrative. My first time through this book, I remember being super wigged out about Alex and the way that Toby reacts to him immediately. I'm not that clever because I didn't figure out that Alex and Terry were the same person until the book told me. I thought about it after I finished and I was just like, why didn't they reveal this sooner? Like, why did it have to wait until the end of the book? Like, why was it necessary to have that reveal so late in the game? It felt structured weirdly, kind of like it was meant to be a red herring. And so you think, oh, wow, finally, we're going to we're going to get some answers. But it's not actually an answer to the actual mystery itself. And I'm not sure it was in the right place in the book, but I'm also not the author. And I don't know, like, the intentions of that specific thing, because I'm thinking back to the other books. And I'm not sure we ever hear about that character or that race of fairy they do explain with in this book about that specific race that they're very very rare and that they don't really exist much in fairy anymore the whole alex terry thing does come up in the bonus novella after the brightest fell yeah it's the brightest fell so spoiler where April and Lee Quinn and Toby figure out how to bring people back. Why is Lee Quinn never even mentioned in this book? That's so strange to me. With this, and it plays into a point I think you wanted to bring up, KJ, is Jan being very secretive. And I can see her being very secretive about her partner, especially as she's being very paranoid about what is going on. And given how many secrets and how closed mouthed a lot of the character, a lot of the people at Tamed Lightning are, I can see that being the case. And so that's kind of like, I guess, a Watsonian. Watsonian is in story logic from the point of view of the characters. Doyleist is outside of the story. Okay, yeah. So for me, that's kind of like the Watsonian view of that is people are being paranoid and tight lipped. 
They aren't going to be talking about anything extraneous. Toby doesn't really interact with Tamed Lightning much until I think book six after that. So she doesn't really go back and talk to, you know, April and Elliot and things like that because maybe like she probably feels really guilty about what happened. I buy that mostly except not with April. The fact that April wouldn't mention having a se- it wouldn't mention even in passing having a second mother is very strange to me because April is not bound by the same structures as everybody else. That's also why it falls apart for me too is because at the very end of the book we see Toby go back for the funeral. She talks to April and she sees everybody, but this person is not there as far as I can tell. I uh, was like, "Hmm, I feel like we just added a character for convenience later on." Which is fine. You could do that. You're allowed to do that. If you are writing a series and you want to retcon the past, you're allowed. If dudes can do it, Shannon McGuire can do it. I think that Shannon McGuire has clearly plotted out a lot of stuff in advance, but you know, I don't fault her for feeling the need to add retcon in new characters or make changes to existing character backstories or whatever. You know, a series this long, that kind of stuff is inevitable things that you didn't see at the beginning come clear to you later. And maybe it's not even a retcon. Maybe it's something that just, it it slides in, even though you didn't think of it before. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Given the fact of how well layered the series is, I'm willing to like, give it a pass. I'm like, whatever, shrug. Look at how everything else lays together. Speaking of things laying together, (laughs) uh... (laughs) I'm sorry, you teed up so well, Renee. And like, also kind of the changes in the narrative from what's plotted out. So I know Sean McGuire has talked about the fact that it took her until I think book four to realize that Toby and Tibble was the long-term ship and not Toby Connor or potentially Tony Walther because I think he shows up in book four as well and she had mentioned that he was a potential love interest for Toby. Anyway, but it's so funny reading this book and being like, your subconscious was telling you something. It opens up with Tibble, like Toby is, just had a girl sign out with her friends and she's walking home drunk and Tibble shows up and he takes her home and gives her his leather jacket and makes sure that she's safe and takes a message for her. And then he comes to help her and her head is laying on his lap at one point. Your subconscious is telling you that Toby Tubble was meant to happen instead of Toby Connor. Yeah, it's hard to miss. In this book, we see the start of the Toby Connor relationship. I didn't remember that Connor and Toby basically acted on their feelings before Connor was no longer married. My feelings about Connor are the same in the first book. Like, it's fine. But I am glad that he wasn't the long-term love interest because he just is fine. You know, it's funny because I'm not usually into the I hate you means I love you kind of dramatic relationship, which is where I saw Toby and T-Vault as possibly being um, when I was first reading this book. Um, Obviously, it doesn't stay there. It becomes a much more stable and solid relationship later. So I saw that sort of sexual tension, but, you know, not liking each other very much dynamic with Toby and Tybalt, whereas Connor and Toby have this, you know, they have a history and they genuinely care about each other. And it's much more, I guess, warm as opposed to hot. Generally, I find that a better foundation for a fictional relationship. I actually was rooting for Toby and Connor to a certain extent. Infidelity is not necessarily a deal breaker for me. I know it is for other people. 
I think I probably had a different perspective on that relationship. I'm not sure you can like judge infidelity in the same way. Like it depends on the context. Yeah. And in this context, it was pretty well established that it, Connor and Rachel were a diplomatic marriage, that there wasn't really any like attachment there. And I know like with Faye, it's like different in terms of age, but also like Rachel is like in her early 20s. Connor is not. And I got the feeling that Connor might have known her when she was little, which kind of like weirds me out in a way. Rachel doesn't seem like a very stable person. Even like we don't really get that yet. That hasn't really come up. But just the way that Toby talks about her, she doesn't seem very stable. I have a lot of thoughts about the situation that led to Connor marrying Rachel and Luna's involvement in that and Luna's eventual character development that we will get to in later books in this series. One thing that rereading this I found interesting that I hadn't really remembered was at various points throughout the book, in Toby's narration, she talks about January as like like a hero of fairy and like this is how a hero would be. And it was really interesting that for me, because one of the plot points of the series is that Toby becomes a hero in both the positive and also the consequences that she ends up facing. And it was just interesting to me that Toby's conception of what a fae hero is, is someone like January, someone like Sylvester, and not necessarily someone like herself. So it's just like a really interesting thing for me to read knowing what comes up in this series. And I wish January hadn't died for good so early. Well, what we think is at this point for good so early in this series, because I think she's very interesting and I would have liked to see more of her. The sort of techno fairy thing. I thought that was really a neat concept. I wish there had been more opportunity for that. So one thing that I did not like about this book was the ending of it and how it felt very much like, I don't know if I'm going to get to write a third book. Uh, her other books have summaries like this, but they didn't feel quite as summary. Am I the only one that felt that way with the, the end of this book? It was interesting because this end, it definitely feels more melancholy than a lot of the other endings. I would say except for maybe The Brightest Fell. I think The Brightest Fell has one of the more melancholy, bleak endings. But I think with some of the other books, even if like the narrative didn't always end the way Toby was anticipating, there always seemed to be a more hopeful edge to it, or at least a more positive edge. In this book, the ending is fully melancholy. It is a cycle that fairy is in. Like, we don't know if January was right about fairy dying. We're left with this funeral. And I think it just kind of stands out, especially for so early in the series. Well, on the other hand, I find Shannon McGuire to be a very cinematic writer. There are two specific scenes I'm thinking of. The first one is when Toby and Quentin are returning to Tame Lightning and the portacullis gate tries to kill them and takes out Toby's car. And that was just like a very excellent scene. The second scene is when Toby starts off a story beat that will become pretty regular when she summons the night haunts and i just find her writing very excellent when she's doing these like very dramatic emotional and or action scenes i think she's very good at them 
this is just me putting out into the universe that somebody in Hollywood could absolutely adapt this series. It would work great on a streaming service. Give me 19 seasons. Thank you. I don't know if the option is still active, but John Rogers production company at one point had the series optioned. Can we do a writing campaign to John Rogers? (laughs) Look, I think John Rogers would do it in a heartbeat. It's just someone trying to buy it because he's been pretty vocal about the fact that with streaming, you're most likely going to have three seasons and that's it. Like that's one of his things when he's talking about things to consider as a TV writer with streaming is three seasons. I don't think it was just optioned. I think it was actively in development, but I don't know how far they got and I haven't heard anything about it in a while. But yeah, I really do think that Shane McGuire is like very, very good and she just continues to get getting better when it comes to like scenes like that. I'm thinking of a scene that comes later, Toby riding a mermaid through San Francisco. <laughs> There's some kind of scene later on like that. That's a great scene. The second scene that was super effective was when Toby summons the Night Haunts, which I found extremely fascinating because for some reason I thought that happened much, much later in the series. There are a couple things about that scene that looking back on that are just super significant. So one is evening is not there. That's true. I didn't even notice that. They specifically name like Devin and Ross and Dare as people who are in the night haunts, but they don't mention evening, which knowing what comes next, it's like, oh my God, how did I not see that the first time around? And then the second part is where Toby is talking with the night haunt that is wearing Dare's face. The night haunt is like, when you die, I will wear your face. And it's like, no, you're going to be wearing her face in the next book. You're going to be May. That one I noticed. The fact that Evening was not among them, I didn't notice. Nobody that they mentioned died before Evening supposedly died. That would have been an even bigger tell. That makes it more subtle. Because, you know, who knows? Maybe they just cycled through it. Maybe enough other people died and they cycled through. But in retrospect, yeah, you're right. That's a very good sneaky hint. But the Night Haunts also make it clear. They're like, there's not so many fairy die that we can handle it. I didn't even notice it either. Diana is like a wizard. I will say I saw someone talking about it when Sean McGuire was doing her recent Toby summary on Twitter. And she was talking about this book. She was saying that someone had called one of the big twists because bracket name didn't appear in scene. It was in my mind and I was looking for it. Still, like, when the narrative itself is telling you, like, wow, what other clues have I missed in this book? I will say I was flipping through late eclipses and there are a lot of clues pretty early on about stuff with August, Simon, and Amadine in one scene. But speaking of August, so one thing at the very end where Toby and Quentin are at the funeral and Toby thinks she sees her mom, I'm wondering if that was August. I mean, August is pretty well established as being lost though at the later, right? That she'd been missing for a long time. But Toby doesn't really see the face. Yeah, letting my eyes drift across the crowd i froze my stomach dropping as i saw a flash of silver blonde hair attached to a willowy woman in a tattered green and brown dress mom knowing what i know now about the series we just get the description of like a woman with the right hair and a dress and it's tattered and so for me i'm wondering if that was a glimpse of august while she was lost maybe and i can't remember if it's brought up again in brightest fell we'll have to look for it (laughs) The Torquils are just a really messed up family. It just gets worse and worse. One thing I did enjoy a lot about this book is is the beginning of Toby's relationship with Quentin. 
that's not really a thing in the first book. I mean, he's he's there, he's around, but he's not part of the action the way he is in this book. This is really the book where Quentin becomes the first in Toby's flock of teenagers, and it's really great. I love their relationship so much. My favorite part between Toby and Quentin is when Toby makes him lock himself in the room and gives him a password that is, do your homework. (laughs) (laughs) I love that found family dynamic between her and Quentin and just how they kind of adopt each other. And we don't know who Quentin really is yet at this point, of course, seeing the sort of very hints of that, the fact that he's clearly well court trained but also seems to already have developed a sense of responsibility towards people, which is an important thing in a good king. And it sounds like, from what we know of his father, it sounds like he's a good king. We see the makings of a good king in Quentin just very early on without even knowing who he is. I do I do really enjoy Quentin and Toby together, both as mentor and squire, which he will become soon, and as friends. And I actually think I like the friends dynamic better, which often we don't necessarily get because they're always on missions and stuff. But I think we see it more later as the series develops. The first book we talked about how much Toby lost in this book, I think, is the first step where she starts gaining the found family that she ends up relying on and that she en- that ends up being her support network. Tibble and Connor are like at this point there, but I think the development of her relationship with Quentin in this book is way more important. And also the hint she's actually becoming friends with Lushak also. So in this book, we see Gordon and Quentin butting heads a lot because Gordon is super unhappy with purebloods. That's the beginning of a through line in the series where you can see the changelings be like very bitter and unhappy about how they're being treated by fairy. And in the context of the reason that they were doing the work at Tame Lightning to begin with to save Fairy, I thought it was very interesting to see these people be like, oh, Fairy is dying, so we need to save it. And the person working so hard to do that is a changeling who wants to create more equality and thinks that this is a way that it can be done. Spoiler, I don't think it would work. Because if you want to save Fairy, you have to save all the parts of it. And part of it is that it's extremely broken and bigoted. You can't just like port it over to a new reality and it's going to be magically better. You actually have to do the work to fix it. Gordon doesn't come back. She's gone for good. Like they mentioned the night haunts coming. Even though Gordon doesn't come back as a character, we still see that same thing happen again and again with changelings just being bitter and angry. Validly angry, obviously. We also see some of it from Toby, who is a little more... Uh, resigned to it and then but part of that comes from toby having some privilege as a knight and so i thought that was an interesting way to like introduce that idea that we're going to see pop up over and over in the series one thing i think that's gonna come to come into play like as the series moves towards its end game is that toby has the ability to change the balance of someone's blood to remove either make someone fully human make someone fully fae uh if someone is a mixture of two different fae lineages to remove one lineage but she does not want to get rid of her human components so one thing I think might come into play is her potentially redefining the role of a changeling and fairy. 
as like the long-term thing. I don't know how exactly it would work, but talking with you, with you two and just kind of thinking about the books and what Toby starts to discover about herself, I'm wondering if that's one of the themes that's going to start getting more play in later books. Yeah, could be. KJ, how many space bees would you give a local habitation? I would give it three space bees in a jar of honey. I have obviously some issues with it, but it's another solid entry as the series gets going. And I liked some things about it very much, and especially the seeds of what's to come. Diana? I would rate it lower at three space bees because I think my annoyances with the structure and the passing of the idiot ball kind of way heavier on me because like I said those are tropes that I particularly dislike I would give it three space bees in a jar of honey as well I still think that this is a pretty solid book I just don't know if you would read it if you want a locked room mystery but you should still read it because you're definitely reading the series with us right we will return to discuss the next book which if you're reading along with us is an artificial night where shit gets real I'm very excited about this book because this is the book that almost made me quit the series. So I'm interested to revisit it again. This is the book that basically cemented in me that I was going to keep reading the series. Yeah, same. I remember back when I first read the series, like I came to you going, what the fuck? It's going to be very interesting to revisit this book in particular. I feel like this is the book where she leveled up, both Toby and Sienna McGuire. Okay, y'all, where can we find you online? KJ. I can be found primarily um, on Twitter at I am KJ or on Dreamwith at Owl Moose. Diana. You can find me mostly on Twitter, partially on YouTube at Bookish Die. Space Bees, thank you for listening to the show. Thanks so much to both of you, KJ and Diana, for coming on the podcast to talk about Toby Day with me. Our music is by Chuki Beats and Boxcat Games. Our show art is by Ira, and our transcripts are by Susan. This episode was made possible by our Space Bees and the Patreon Hive. You can listen to our show at fangirlhappyhour.com. Remember to drink some water, wear a mask, get vaccinated, and take care of each other. Hi, buddy. Are you? Tr- you know that I'm on a video call. My cat just crashed uh, because he is a terrible child who knows I'm on a video on a call and is like, I must get attention. This is a podcast. You all can't see him, but he is very cute. Toby goes on a field trip to Silicon Valley and mayhem ensues. Yeah, I don't know. Fremont's not really Silicon Valley, but I guess close enough. It's Silicon Valley in my heart. Kate's just gonna have opinions about the geography. She's gonna be like, but actually, I have I, I have many geography quibbles with this series, honestly. But you know, I try not to get into them. Although I, I will say, I noticed it a lot more when reading Rosemary and Rue than I remembered that the geography of this is somewhat incomprehensible. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm gonna do the little intro. Maybe if I can read past my microphone. Wow, this did not plan. I did not plan this setup very well. Jeez. 
Listen, if somebody's looking for the next Supernatural, I've got you covered. It's called, <laughs> it's called October Day. It's Tyson and McGuire. Do you want 15 seasons of something awesome? Well, guess what? I have your series for you. The thing is, I don't want it on the CW. I want it far away from the CW. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily on the CW, but like the length of Supernatural. If Supernatural could run for eight zillion years, <laughs> so can October Day. Yes. It wasn't, I guess it wasn't that important if I can't remember it three <laughs> seconds later.